human race Some kind of love and rhyme I'll be sliding down I'll be gliding down Try not to try too hard It's just a lovely ride You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Training Hard Times and the Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have a good personal friend of mine, Ian Gordon, with me. For those of you who've listened to this show on a regular basis, Ian Gordon needs no introduction, and you can certainly uh, go to read his bio at the radio website. Uh, He's there along with all of our guests, and uh, Ian has a background uh, in finance um, as a broker. uh, But more importantly, from my point of view, he is uh, an economic historian. He's a person that's gone back and looked at economic history. He's studied a lot of things, uh, and I think you know most people these days in the financial markets are pretty pretty ignorant about history, and they and they really don't think it's relevant. But history does definitely teach us a lot about how uh, humans behave uh, during long periods of time. And uh, and Ian is about to tell us more about his theories and. The theories of a very famous economist, Nikolai Kondratiev. Welcome, Ian, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Thank you very much, Jimmy. Really good to have you back here. We had you on a couple of times in the past. You were on one time with Robert Prechter, who's probably one of the most famous deflationists uh, at, at this time anyway. And it was really a pleasure having you on with uh, with Mr. Prechter. Well, Ian, I'd like to start out by asking you, uh, and, and some of this will be old material to people that know you well and people that have heard you talk before, but I think it's it's always helpful to go back and make sure that we start from the foundation, the beginning of, of your theory and your work. And as I just noted to our listeners, you have been a, um, you, you've really been a student of economic history, uh, and it's very rare, I think, among modern-day um, brokers, people in the financial community. But a lot of your work, at least some of it, is based on the work of Nikolai Kondratiev. For those who don't know who Nikolai Kondratiev is, can you give our listeners a bit of a background on, on this man? Well, he was um, a Russian economist, uh, and he wrote uh, his long-wave uh, disposition, really, in, in sort of mid-1920. So he based it uh, on trade, uh, interest rates, and, and so on, and he it, ap- it appeared to him that the, the economic uh, cycle went through a very long process of uh, up and down, uh, and I call that a lifetime cycle for, uh, because for most of us, at least during a meaningful lifetimes when we have to make decisions for economic decisions for ourselves, uh, it lasts about that full lifetime, about 60, 70 years. Mm-hmm. And we've broken the cycle into the four seasons of the year. I don't think that I'm unique in having done that, but uh, I think that they're very appropriate. Uh, so each of the seasons is about uh, a quarter of the total length of the cycle, 15, 20 years. And spring is the birth or rebirth of the economy. 
summer is the time when the economy reaches its fruition. Autumn is always the feel-good period in the economy. And then it's this time when stocks, bonds, and real estate really make the biggest gains throughout the whole uh, cycle. And then winter is a time when uh, debt is uh, essentially washed out of the economy. Uh, and it's a very painful process uh, causing troubles to both the creditors and the debtors. And that process is uh, now occurring at, at this time. So we're in the winter of the cycle right now. And that started really with a peak in the stock market in 2000, just as the previous winter started with the peak of the stock market in 1929. Mm -hmm. Okay, so these different seasons then call for different kinds of investments. Now, we're in the winter right now, and I want to get to, we'll, we'll be, I, su I suppose, spending most of this next hour talking about what kind of things we should be owning right now in this period, because this is the relevant one. But I'd like to go back a little bit to spring. What kind of things do really well in spring? Stocks are good in spring? Well, um, because it's the birth or rebirth of the economy, obviously, you know, the economy is going to prosper during spring. Mm -hmm. And therefore, things like stocks and uh, real estate perform exceptionally well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the bull last spring started in the present cycle in 1949, and the Dow Jones uh, rose from about 161 points in 1949 and, and peaked at the end of spring in 1966 at 995 points. So obviously, that was a mm. great place to be. And similarly, um, real estate performs very well. Uh, they perform well because those are the things that have been really beaten up in the in the previous winter. Uh, money's come out of the stock market. Substantial amounts of money have come out of the stock market in the winter, and also out of real estate. I mean, the whole real estate market uh, gets crushed during the winter. Mm -hmm. uh, so real estate stocks perform very well. Then you go into the summer, uh, 1966 to 1980, 82. And the summer is always the inflationary period of the cycle. For some reason, uh, there's always been a war fought in the summer, and that war has always been financed by uh, monetary printing, um, so that in the first cycle it was the War of 1812, in the second cycle it was the U.S. Civil War, the third cycle was the 1418 World War, and the fourth cycle was the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. And so there's an you know, huge expansion of money, and it causes a, a big inflation in the summer of the cycle. And therefore, the things that perform very well in, in inflation, again, real estate does uh, very well in the cycle. Uh, commodities do exceptionally well. Any, actually, anything, because people are spending money because they know that values of money are going to drop with the rises in inflation. So even collectors' comic books and so on Mm -hmm. do very well in that kind of environment. Mm -hmm. And gold and silver perform exceptionally well as well. Mm -hmm. uh, you can see that gold in uh, 1971 was uh, set, was $35 an ounce, and it rises into 1980 to $850 an ounce. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and and commodities, then, Ian, let me just ask you, yeah. this is a good time for commodities in general too, though, I suppose. Energy, right. yeah. uh, oil, gas, uh, copper, Every, that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. And, and that and that season went from 1966 to 1982, you say? Well, 80-82, because uh, there yeah. are four events that actually 
uh, occur at the end of summer that tell you you're going into autumn, and those four events are a peak in the commodity price, a peak in prices, a peak in interest rates, and you can probably remember back to 81 interest rates at about uh, here in Canada. Anyway, they were 20 percent. Painfully, and painfully, I can tell you, we paid, we had a 17.5% mortgage on our first house, Mrs. Taylor and I, when we bought it in 1981. So, yes, I'm aware, very much aware. So the peak in interest rates is one of the one of the telltales that, peak, that it's a peak in prices, peak in interest rates, mm-hmm. the bear market in stocks. You can uh, probably remember the 1981-82 bear market. That took very the, painful, very painful bear market. Right, and the same bear market, those four events occur between 20 and 21, and then um, you get the big recession, which the 81-82 recession was uh, looked upon as the worst recession since the Great Depression. So those four events, similar events, occur between 20 and 21, 1920 and 21, peak in interest rates, peak in prices, a bear market in stocks, and a recession, and those events herald the the, uh, the beginnings of autumn. Okay. And autumn, as I said, is always the biggest uh, bull market in stocks, bonds, and real estate. Mm-hmm. So, if in '81, sorry, in '82, when the bear market bottomed in August 1982, the stock bear market, the Dow hit 777. You have bought stocks at that point, knowing you were going in to go into a big bull market, which was equivalent to the bull market of 21-29. Mm-hmm. And also, you can go back to the bull market that ended in 1873, or even further back to the bull market that ended in 1837. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know that that's the time to be invested in stocks, bonds, and real estate, and it performs exceptionally well. And then, when the stock market uh, peaks at the end of autumn, and we say the real peak in the stock prices was actually in 2000. When you had the biggest speculation in stocks, you can probably remember the dot-com. Sure. NASDAQ, uh, going above 5,000. And, uh, you, know, you know, the NASDAQ's never been anywhere close to 5,000 since that time. And so that peak heralds the onset of winter and the payback period when debt is going to be uh, washed out of the system. Now, it's a little different this time than it was after the 1929 peak. Inasmuch as uh, in 1929 the U.S. government was on a was on the gold standard system, so that mm. it was difficult to print copious amounts of money to fight mm. the uh, the beginnings of the depression mm-hmm. uh, because of that, because otherwise you'd have lost it, most of your gold, which is mm. actually is what happened. I mean, there was a huge run to gold following the 29 peak and the st- because the banking system in the United States essentially collapsed. Mm-hmm. Um, and 10,000 banks failed between 29 and 1933. So there was a big, big run to gold. And that's why when Roosevelt uh, became president in 1933, March 1933, one of the first things he did was confiscate gold mm-hmm. and essentially a very soon thereafter take the U.S. off the gold standard. And at that time, the whole world monetary system collapsed. So we're seeing a parallel today with that world monetary system collapsing. Then we're seeing the same kinds of evidence today that the world monetary system is in jeopardy. And when that world monetary system collapsed, it it wasn't sort of uh, reignited 
until Bretton Woods in 1944, so that you essentially world trade basically came to a standstill. I think I think world trade dropped by about 80 percent uh, following the 1931-33 when uh, Britain left the gold standard. Well, the whole system did collapse. So. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing a big parallel with that today, and we think that that's probably the thing that's going to be the most damaging in terms of uh, our winter depression that we're now currently facing. So you think uh, trade, if I understand you correctly, you're saying a collapse in, in global trade? Well, it follows the collapse of the world monetary system because no one mm-hmm. trusts anybody's money. Mm-hmm. And uh, therefore, they don't want to be paid in dollars, or they don't want mm-hmm. to be paid in pounds, or they don't want to be paid in euros because there's a a big distrust of that. We had that sort of the initial evidence of that in 2008 when Mm -hmm. uh, the LIBOR rate went uh, sky high and banks wouldn't lend to other banks and so on. So we've already seen the sort of initial stages of that kind of thing and we know that uh, uh, you know, or we believe anyway, that we're going to go through a secondary part of that where the whole banking system is going to get back into dire straits. Mm-hmm. Ian, let me ask you now, uh, this season started in 1949. Uh, right. So how many years, how long is this season so far, if you can help me with the with the arithmetic here? Well, no, the, 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 the cycle started in 49. Right. I'm sorry, the cycle started in 49, that's what I mean. So if we're looking at, generally we're looking at uh, 60 to 70 years. How long have we run about how long already? Well, we, we've sort of put out that we think the cycle will complete, the winter will complete by 2020. Okay. And, and then so the we've got another spring, nine years or so. And the new spring should begin in, two, you know, 2020. Now, it, you know, again, it's very different this time because the central world central bankers are fighting tooth and nail to keep mm-hmm. the system going. Mm-hmm. And they don't have the gold standard to keep them, to hold them back now like they did before. Right. So they're printing absolutely copious amounts of money, um, you know, and a lot of that money's come back into, you know, much of it has come back into the speculative, back into stocks, back into commodities and mm-hmm. so on. So, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, but again, the whole process of the winter is to is to cleanse the economy of debt. Mm-hmm. And that process is being thwarted by the central banks, but it will have to happen. You can't mm-hmm. uh, build an economy uh, based on this amount of debt. And if you mm-hmm. look at the debt, Jay, in the United States, it's $57 trillion. Mm-hmm. And even if you take the federal and state and municipal governments out of that uh, equation, it's still $42 trillion of uh, commercial, uh, financial, and consumer debt Forty-two trillion dollars. Well, most of that is going to be is going to be wiped out, mm-hmm. and um, and that process is going to be very. You know, the bank the bankers are trying to to negate that process, but it won't work. You know, mm-hmm. you can't build a strong economy on that kind of debt. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess the question is washed out is is uh, certainly something that. I think almost everybody agrees on. There is quite a dispute, though, in terms of how it's going to get washed out. There are those that think it's going to happen through the fires of inflation, even hyperinflation. Then there are those like yourself and Robert Prechter and a host of other people we've had on this radio show who talk about it happening through 
you know, through a debt deflation. Uh, Doug Casey, I know we've had on the show, is on the inflation side. Ron Paul is on the inflation side, but some equally smart people like yourself and Robert Prechter and uh, a number of Bob Hoy and a number of other people are on the deflation side. How is it that you uh, that you see deflation as being the means of resolving this uh, th- this this credit problem? Well, what you're trying to resolve is it, yeah is the is the credit or debt problem, and what happens in in that resolution is actually the debt is expunged. So, if you're going to even if you're going to expunge ninety percent of the debt, and we're not counting the U.S. government, state, or municipal debt, but the 90% of, of the $42 trillion, you know, you're still looking at something like, even even if you took $30 trillion of that mm-hmm. debt, washed it out, that mm-hmm. process means, uh, you know, basically prices are going to drop dramatically. We're already seeing deflation in real estate, I mean, yeah. quite dramatically in real estate because uh, prices have, were bid up so high and now and mortgages were so easy to come in, and mortgages were simply debt on housing. And now that process of debt, mortgage debt, is being washed out of the system and mm-hmm. bringing those prices down. Mm-hmm. So also you see in the United States an unemployment rate of, you know, an official rate of about 9%, but the real rate is probably closer to 16 and some would argue 20%. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, those people who aren't working, can't get jobs are not going to be able to spend money and they're going to basically fight for their survival I mean they're going to be the little money that they do get through government and social security or whatever it is is going to be spent on, on trying to live so um, that too will bring you know will bring prices down right now what we have I think in the in in the markets is yeah prices are rising uh, worldwide because uh, there are shortages and so on, but I still believe that a lot of this is also due to a huge amount of speculation that mm-hmm. things like QE2 have brought on, so mm-hmm. that everybody's in the speculative markets, whether it's stocks, bonds, or commodities, mm-hmm. people are playing in, in, in those arenas. Mm-hmm. I tend to agree with you on that, uh, Ian, that, it's the, the, that what we're seeing, these rising prices in commodities are more of a speculation than they are based on real demand in the global economy. And you're, you're, I know you're aware of my inflation deflation watch. Uh, I went through and looked at the various components of that since 2005 when I started using it. And I noticed that those, those items in the, defla- in the index uh, that, would, that would suggest that we have a rising, growing economy are not doing very well. Uh, for example, uh, Walmart, which is my proxy for consumer uh, for consumer stocks, um, you know, retail trade. Of course, the housing stocks are, are battered to hell, uh, and, um, and 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 um, the auto, the proxy for the auto, uh, Toyota hasn't done hasn't done all that well. So there's various other things too that would reflect that would really be, I would think, leading the commodity sector if we had a real growing economy. That those items that would be, you know, that would be focused on the growth of the economy, would be rising dramatically. Well, they're not. What has risen dramatically are the commodity items uh, during this period of time. And um, and and one of the things I'd like to ask you about too, Ian, and one another convincing uh, side of the of your side of the argument on the deflation side that I that I find very compelling is when you look at the. I know there's a chart that you and I are very familiar with. Uh, comes from grandfather economics, but you look at that 
debt that you talked about, exponentially exponential growth, and it's uh, shown as a red line on this chart. It's growing almost straight off the page. Uh, you said uh, 57 trillion, I think you said. But more importantly, uh, in a sense, is this the blue line, which is the income line, and that's growing in a linear fashion. It, you know, if it's growing at all, it's at two, three percent, something like that. So it doesn't seem to be. Uh, uh, you know, I'm which I'm just wondering where can you get the income that grows fast enough to service that debt? And I guess what you're saying is you can't. No matter how much money you print, you can't do it. Is that right? Well, that's how I see it. And, I, I mean, eventually what's going to happen is that uh, U.S. GDP uh, or income is going to drop and drop dramatically. I mm -hmm. mean, a lot of the GDP right now is based on, you know, is based on government spending mm -hmm. um, in, in, in the economy. Mm -hmm. And uh, but once the depression really starts to take hold, that GDP is going to drop and drop dramatically. So mm -hmm. uh, in the between 1929 and 1933, U.S. GDP dropped by 45%. Mm -hmm. So imagine you go from a 14 trillion dollar economy, you know, down to an 8 trillion dollar economy, and yet mm -hmm. you still got all that debt mm -hmm. service above that. And that in itself is very deflationary. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm, a, you know, I'm a convinced deflationist. But what the only thing that I do see, Jay, that you know, that you know, I think a lot of people are seeing is um, I, I truly believe that the the whole world monetary system is collapsing, much as it did between 1931 and 33. Mm -hmm. And that too. That in itself is deflationary, but everybody's sort of seeing the dollar as the weak sister of the currencies. Mm -hmm. but the the world's reserve currency still. It is the world's reserve currency, but it's 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 really no no worse than any of them. They're all mm -hmm. paper, and they're all mm -hmm. backed by nothing. So mm -hmm. just a matter of the fact is that the U.S. dollar debt has now become so uh, extreme that the world, you know, the world the countries of the world are still hold those dollars because they have to make purchases in those dollars. So mm -hmm. um, I don't think the dollar is going to collapse any faster than the whole system is going to collapse. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, to my mind, is extremely deflationary. Mm -hmm. Do you see that happening uh, in in a sudden flash, a twinkling of an eye, or, or do you think this is something that's going to take be protracted? You're talking about the winter running out through 2020 possibly so do you see this as a gradual process or do you think one day we might wake up and find the dollar completely collapsed or the system collapsed i should say maybe not maybe maybe all of the currencies basically collapsed together is that the way you see it and and will it happen suddenly well i i think it will happen suddenly because these sort of shocks are sudden mm -hmm. and um you know, we went. We wrote our outlook for 2011, and in it, one of the things we noted was that 2011 is 80 years from 1931, and we're very cognizant, uh, or at least I'm very cognizant, of anniversaries. Mm -hmm. And so, 80 years is sort of a round number that uh, someone like W. D. Gann, who mm -hmm. was one of the great cycle people died in the 50s, but it was an exceptional person, he would use that and suggest that uh, it could, you know, we could experience very similar kinds of things 
this time in, in 2011 to, to the kinds of things that occurred in 1931. And, of course, in 1931, you had the beginnings of, of the collapse of the world monetary system. Mm -hmm. And that started in May 1931 when the Bank mm -hmm. in Austria, the biggest bank in Austria, failed. Now, when that bank got into trouble, everybody was trying to bail it out. J.P. Morgan, even the Federal Reserve, the Bank of England, everybody, but particularly the U.S., J.P. Morgan, U.S. banks, uh, wanted to bail out this Austrian bank. Well, why would they want to bail out a bank over in Austria? Mm -hmm. uh, the thing is that the U.S. banks had lent copious amounts of money into Europe, and particularly into Central Europe, into countries like Austria and Germany. Um, in those days, the banks, you know, the, there was so much money in the United States that the banks were so flush with cash that they were looking to lend anywhere. I mean, some uh, little mayor in some town in Brazil could go to J.P. Morgan or go to an American bank and say, look, uh, we want to build, you know, a railway system between our town and the next town. And so the American bank would then uh, say, how much is that going to be? Well, $50 million, okay. And the American bank would then, you know, lend them the $50 million and then sell that debt to, uh, you know, to the investors mm -hmm. of the bank. And mm -hmm. so they were desperate to stop this one Austrian bank failing because they knew if the Austrian bank failed, the whole system would collapse. Mm -hmm. uh, and... And it did. And uh -huh. so we see great parallels today with that kind of thing. And we sort of went out and said, you know, where we think it might happen is in Ireland, mm -hmm. where, you know, this new government, although it seems to have caved into the demands of the IMF and, and, the, and the European countries to sort of just they want to pay lower interest rates. But if, if, the, if the Irish government basically said, look, we're going to go, we're leaving the euro. We're going to basically go, you know, we're going to bankrupt. The country's bankrupt. The banks are bankrupt. And, um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that would take down an awful lot of European banks that have all that bank, Irish bank debt on their books. Mm -hmm. And that's why the European countries are so desperate to keep the, the sovereign nations from going insolvent and mm -hmm. keep them there because they know that if they, if they, if they do declare bankruptcy, the whole banking system in Europe is going to collapse, mm -hmm. much, like the Europe, much like the U.S. banking system collapsed in the 30s. Mm -hmm. This is what's the big war that's being fought by the central banks uh, today is to keep that, those sovereign nations solvent so that mm -hmm. their banks, uh, German banks, British banks, French banks, and so on, don't get hit by a whole wealth of of uh, in, you know paper that they you know basically is now turned bad. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting. Uh, so actually, what you were suggesting would happen, um, you know, a, a small mayor, a mayor in a small town, or someplace in Argentina, or, or somewhere around the world, could go to J.P. Morgan and, and and borrow money to build a railroad. That sort of thing actually happened, Ian, during that during that time frame. In the in the twenties, yeah. The twenties, yeah. Mm -hmm. 20s. And it, it 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 sort of reminds you an awful lot of the the housing boom that we had, where people with a heartbeat could get a loan, and on a smaller scale, to to buy a, a McMansion or something. Um, 
And and uh, this would seem to be, you know, from an Austrian perspective, from an Austrian economics perspective, just you know, just the kind of malinvestment that that occurs when you flush the system with money when you don't have when you don't have a gold standard. But but actually, what you're saying is it doesn't matter whether you're in a gold standard or not. The system always finds, or the, let's say the people, the politicians, the policymakers find a way of expanding the system, the credit system, up to the point where it breaks down. Is that right? Right. So and, what we're saying, Jay, is that really, you know, the, this winter is not very much different from the 29, uh, you know, 30s winter mm-hmm. uh, depression because it's all, the, 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 the problem is the debt. Mm-hmm. And that, the, the process and, the, you know, the, the politicians and the central bankers are fighting desperately to keep the debt bubble from collapsing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, uh, and they and that, that was a parallel I was trying to draw on the Credit Ange Bank mm-hmm. failure. You know, they were mm-hmm. desperate to stop that Credit Ange Bank failing. If they knew if it failed, it would bring down all the banks because everybody, all the other Central European banks and anybody who had been lent money by, principally at that time by U.S. banks, mm-hmm. uh, would also collapse. Mm-hmm. And the whole system. So it was all dependent on this one bank, and it brought down everything. One bank. Well, we've yeah. certainly seen that, Ian. Again, you know, the the huge amounts of money that was pumped into Europe uh, uh, following the Lehman Brothers collapse and and the problems that occurred in 2008, 2009. We subsequently found out that the Fed had pumped huge amounts of money into Europe to to sort of stabilize those banks. It seems to me uh, that uh, that this is a, a, a real fight. I mean, this is really, uh, really. Um, uh, probably never tried before to such a global extent. I mean, it, it happened certainly in the in the 30s, as you're saying, but now without without uh, without a gold-backed system, with any country having a gold-backed system, obviously the system has expanded beyond belief. We're going to have to go to a commercial break right now. And when we come back, uh, I want to ask you some more things about deflation and uh, and whether or not there couldn't be helicopter money, uh, money just showered out over the population to offset this deflationary pressure and uh, so I want to get your comment on that and much much more also to talk about where people should be putting their money and maybe you'll have some investment ideas for our listeners as well folks don't go away we're going to be right back after the commercial break with Ian Gordon don't go away Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Find out about new shows, featured guests, and what's up this week. Find us on Facebook by searching keyword Voice America. Great Panther Silver is a profitable primary silver producer trading on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol GPR. GPR operates two 100% owned mines in Mexico, has a solid track record of increasing production, and continues to add resources and reserves. GPR has developed an organic growth strategy that will see production increase by more than 65% over the next two years. Great Panther Silver is also generating excitement at its new discovery in Guanajuato and expanding its drill program. Look for GPR on the TSX. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to underlying problems. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to triple the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. 
At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Training Hard Times in the Good Times. I'm really pleased to have with me for the second half of this hour Ian Gordon again. Uh, Ian uh, is a, a renowned deflationist, very, very adamant about it. He, uh, he's done his homework. He's worked extremely hard. And if you want to get the deflation side of this argument, I don't know of anybody better to go to than Ian Gordon. Uh, maybe Robert Prechter, who we've had on this show, can make an argument, although he does make a good argument, obviously. But... Uh, there's some differences between Ian and Robert, and we might explore some of those. But I'd like to pick up where we left off, Ian. Um, one of the things, uh, you know, I hear Bob Hoy talking, for example, about a credit deflation. Now, clearly, you know, you see this as ex- excessive credit beyond what can be handled in the system, and it has to, it has to come back, it has to be wiped off the books because there's no way it can be paid, no matter what the policymakers do, whether they try to inflate it away or not. In fact, I think you would argue that the more they try to inflate, the more they're creating deflation in a sense. Uh, is that right? Well, um, yeah, because, I mean, really, you know, in a 
paper money system, the issuance of paper money is, is the issuance of debt. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the more debt you create, the more deflation is, you know, that you are also creating the ultimate end result of too much debt is, is deflation. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, because as that debt is taken out of the system, that process uh, overwhelms, uh, you know, the banking system. There's no credit available. Credit becomes very, very scarce, and we're already sort of seeing that process occurring right now. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, particularly for consumers. I mean, it's very difficult for consumers to get a loan right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that the, the debt sort of, deflation uh, brings down because people are, you know, in in that kind of environment, people are simply uh, fighting just to survive, Jay. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. got this difficult kind of, you know, you've got massive unemployment, 20, 30% unemployment Mm -hmm. people, and uh, everybody is just, uh, and those people who are employed or those people who have money are not going to spend it. Mm-hmm. They're going to rain in their horns. They're not going to go to, uh, uh, you know, the, the wealthy aren't going to be going to buying Gucci bags and this kind of thing. They're going to be trying to um, sort of keep their wealth. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and the people who don't have jobs are going to be fighting just to survive. So mm-hmm. prices have come down. I mean, can you imagine everybody, people aren't going to be driving their SUVs uh, down to the local Walmart to pick up the groceries and this kind of thing. Or if mm-hmm. they are, they're going to do it once every, you know, once a month and mm-hmm. and put the food away in the in the freezer and this kind of thing. So the the whole thing really grinds to a standstill. Mm-hmm. The economy grinds to a standstill. People don't have money to spend. People who do have money don't want to spend it, mm-hmm. and therefore prices come down because demand comes down so dramatically. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, interestingly enough, Ian, we saw that behavior you're talking about, the wealthy people pulling in their horns after, immediately after Lehman Brothers, uh, 2008 into the early part of 2009. We had Howard Davidowitz on our show last week, and Howard was talking about right now, he says of the American population, 80% of the people are getting poorer, 20% are doing okay or getting wealthier. And he said at the moment, since this rebound here now, we've seen a lot of wealthy people starting to spend their on Gucci bags and so forth. The, the upper-level stores are doing extremely well, and the stores like um, oh, Walmart uh, that had initially done well because the wealthier people went down into Walmart, Walmart isn't doing all that well now, and we're seeing that in the price of the stock. And I mentioned it's one of the components in my inflation-deflation watch. What Howard said is the stores that are doing really well are like the dollar stores, the really, really cheap stores, the, the stores that the poorest of our poor, you know, the poor, uh, the growing number of poor people in America have to go to. But I guess what you're saying is when the next shoe drops, when, the, when we come around to the next decline, that you're going to see that behavior again on the part of the wealthy. They will pull in their horns, too. Uh, and the poor people are going to, I mean, you're going to have, a, according to Howard Davidowitz, we've got a growing, uh, a thinning out of the middle class. We're really seeing more and more poor people, people that can't make ends meet. And you mentioned high rates of unemployment. Also, of course, we've seen for years the salaries, the real wages of people declining fairly significantly in America. So that all seems very, very deflationary to me. But here's the thing that Ron Paul, who's been on our show, 
uh, a couple of times, and I've, I've questioned him about this, and I've pushed him on the deflation side of, of the argument. And Ron says, well, he says, you know, he believes that ultimately uh, money will be sent to the poor, that is, to the low-income low groups, that there's going, you're going to see huge amounts of money transferred through, uh, through the system. He says we can easily do it now. We can just issue checks as was done in the, uh, you know, as, as we saw on a small scale after the, the flood in, um, uh, in Louisiana. Uh, but do you think it's possible? I mean, let's just say that literally the government printed money instead of, instead of trying to expand the system through the, you know, through the credit system. Clearly that isn't working right now because banks can't lend. We have Barney Frank trying to say, suggest that we should command banks to lend to the to people who can't pay them back. But do you, do you think there's there's a possibility? Is, is, are the politics right for it at, the, at this time or sometime in the future when we might actually see, uh, you know, huge amounts of money paid out to the masses instead of the bankers? Uh, no. You don't see that happening? No, absolutely not, because the Federal Reserve, which is the, the U.S. printing press, Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, that's the institution that creates the money. Mm-hmm. The Federal Reserve is owned by the, the bankers, mm-hmm. J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, and so on. They own the Federal Reserve. So the Federal Reserve is going to do what its masters tell them to do. Mm-hmm. And those bankers, they want to be bailed out. I mean, we don't know how bad it is for those bankers. We've, no one's ever got to the bottom of, of the derivative situation mm-hmm. sure. and so on and we all know even in the bad loans and so on so the federal reserve has been pumping money into those banks and will continue to do so because those banks who own the federal reserve are demanding it mm-hmm. they're not going to create or the treasury could create you know borrow from the federal reserve and then issue everybody with you know a check but what are they going to give them i mean we had cash for clunkers and so on and you know where people were given Money here in, in Canada, we had uh, our federal government was giving people, you know, if they wanted to do some renovations in the house, I think you could get up to ten thousand dollars for doing renovations in your home and so on. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so we've we've sort of gone through that process, but I really don't think it's good. we're going to, you know, it's not going to be a meaningful. Even if we give everybody a thousand dollars, every, you know. It's, so they go and buy one flat screen TV, and then that's a thousand gone. And what do you got to keep doing? Are you going to give them a million? Mm-hmm. I don't think so. Well, interesting. Go ahead, Ian. Sorry. Sorry, I just don't. I think that that's you know. I mean, I have a great deal of respect for uh, Mr. Paul. I think he's uh, you know. I've got many of the books that he's written. I think he's a, he's probably one of the best politicians that you have in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, he certainly is probably also one of the most honest, but mm. uh, I just don't think that there's that the wherewithal or the means or the desire to really bail out the poor. I mean, really, you know, we, the banks are far more important to the Federal Reserve than the mm-hmm. poor people. That's interesting. Uh, I, I I tend to agree with you the way the system sits right now. We are hoping to get on Dennis Kucinich, uh, uh, left side of the political spectrum uh, congressman uh, who is proposing an end the Fed bill as well. But Dennis would have 
the Congress uh, having the printing press. He would take it away from the Fed. He would give it to the Congress. Uh, of course, Ron Paul isn't in favor of that at all. He would like to see the markets choose money and get rid of the Fed essentially over time and phase it out uh, and let and let the markets decide, you know, what they use, what people decide what they use as a medium of exchange. But, uh, you know, Ian, I've had an idea, and I want to ask you what your thoughts are about this. Uh, my sense is that it, certainly what you're saying is right. The bankers get bailed out. The Federal Reserve is created for the banks. We know that. We've had Ed Griffin on this show. We've had other people that have talked uh, and have provided uh, support for that for that view it's 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 reality uh, but you know who's who but who's to say that that might not change let's say that if the parasites uh, that are now getting bailed out um, they wreck the system and then you know and then all hell breaks loose politically in America because people become desperate isn't it possible that at some point Americans become so angry they storm the Capitol or they do, you know, they go they go nuts, and uh, and then you get a, you know, these guys say, okay, well, let them eat cake, you know, let, let's let's give the let's give the babies their the crying babies their milk, and and uh, and then um, and then you could see a Dennis Kucinich come through, and then you could hyperinflate. Is that do you think that's politi- a political reality? Do you think that could well, be a reality? Well, I don't. Again, I don't agree with that. I mean, you know, the whole system is collapsing. Mm-hmm. To hyperinflate into that collapse is very going to be very, very difficult. Sure. But one thing I would say, you know, actually a couple things about the Fed, Jay. I think, you know, if the U.S. government really, you know, and you might want to pass this on to Mr. Paul, but, you know, mm-hmm. the best thing that the Federal Reserve could do is to keep buying U.S. treasuries. You know, they just create... They print the money and then buy the treasuries. Mm-hmm. So if the Federal Reserve could have five, six, seven trillion dollars worth of U.S. debt on its books, mm-hmm. then you basically uh, the politicians then go in and say, "Okay, uh, we're going to do away with the Fed," and you'd do away with that debt. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. No, that would you'd win. You know, and you could probably cut forty percent of the U.S. debt by doing away with the Fed. We're on record as saying we do. We expect the Fed will cease to exist in 2013. Mm-hmm. Again, we're looking at the 100-year anniversary of its birth. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. And we wrote a piece in 2007, which we called "This Is It." We could see that the whole banking system was in dire straits, and then we said it. We thought the banking system would collapse, uh, the stock market would peak. And so on. We wrote this in 2007, and we said 2007 was the 100-year anniversary of the 1907 crash, which was the instigator, really, for the birth of the Federal Reserve. That 1907 crash. So we said the 2007 crash will be the instigator for the Fed's demise, and the Fed will will cease to exist in 2013. That's interesting because uh, Bob Hoy, who's been on this show frequently, uh, would probably, I don't know if his timing would be exactly like that, but it, it, that would be in the neighborhood. I think Bob feels uh, that, you know, that the system will self-destruct, that, that the Fed will, will uh, uh, and I know that Bob feels the Tea Party is an important um, here-to-stay here to political movement. He thinks that it's a reaction, angry people are being angered and that, um, and that they're going to demand a change and demand the Fed uh, get run out of town. But that's an interesting concept, and I will try to remember to pass that on to Ron Paul. We are expecting to get him back on our show sometime in the near future, perhaps before the end of this month. 
Uh, and that, that's an interesting concept. Well, isn't that in part what the Fed is doing now, Ian? Isn't the Fed going out and, I mean, we're, we're hearing at least that the Fed is certainly buying a certain amount of treasuries, uh, making up for maybe what the Chinese were buying previously and, and other creditor nations? Well, that's, how, that's effectively how the Fed creates quantitative easing. Mm-hmm. Is that, uh, they, buy, they, they print the money, buy the treasuries from the banks and stuff the banks with the money mm-hmm. that they pay for, and then they put the treasuries on their own balance sheet. So, you know, can, and, uh, the, the Fed right now is already the biggest holder of U.S. debt paper, mm-hmm. bigger than China. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if you could, if the, if the U.S. government could encourage the Fed to keep and create even more quantitative easing and, and buy up even more U.S. debt, then eventually uh, phase out the debt, and all that debt paper on the Fed's books, U.S. debt paper, would be basically washed out as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I can see it coming, though, Ian, as a taxpayer in the United States. I can see it coming to try to support uh, to support that game longer. They will be increasing taxes down here on a population that is increasingly poverty-stricken. I have a question for you. Um, this is just sort of a conceptual question with respect to deflation. If we get real price deflation, and as you say, we've certainly seen it in the housing market, but if it spreads generally, which you would expect in a deflation by definition, wouldn't the dollar be a good thing to hold? I think Robert Prechter would see it that way. Wouldn't the dollar? Wouldn't the dollar be? Wouldn't the dollar gain in purchasing power then, if that were to occur? Well, it will except you know uh, until the whole system, the whole world, the whole world monetary system collapses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which basically, you know, when that system collapses, you, you really the world has to go on to a new monetary system. And so when the world monetary system collapsed, you know, between 1931 and 33, it wasn't until 44 that we went on a new system. But in, in 1933, when the U.S. left the, the gold standard system and, um, and you know, essentially that, that was the end of, uh, of the monetary system at that time, um, you know, the U.S. was at that time, the greatest creditor nation, so that uh, money actually and gold flowed to the United States, mm-hmm. uh, particularly when Roosevelt uh, increased the price of gold from $20.67 an ounce to uh, $35 an ounce in January 1934. So, uh, yeah, the, the dollar was a great place to be, but I, I just don't see any of these money surviving and, you know, and a new system... But obviously, if you live in America, you, you know, you've got to have dollars because that's what you've got to, you know, you've got to pay for stuff with. So, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, and prices will come down so that if you've got money, uh, you know, you, it, it's going to be cheaper for you to buy buy stuff So mm-hmm. in dollars. But it's the same for me living in Canada because prices are going to come down there and I've got Canadian dollars and I'll live off my Canadian dollars. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, except uh, this leads me then to a question with respect to, to gold. You know, most people think of gold as a hedge against inflation. They don't see it as a safety or as a hedge against deflation. I think you see you see gold as being the place to be, the, the best place to be probably, in a deflation as well. Could you explain that to our listeners? Well, Jay, we've, we've ad- advocated uh, 
being in gold since uh, probably 1999. Mm-hmm. And, you know, certainly for my own account and my wife's account, you know, investment accounts, we went 100% into gold in 2009. At that time, I was an investment advisor, and all my clients were basically doing the same thing. We, we put 100% of our, our money in our investment accounts into the gold, into gold equities mm-hmm. and principally into the junior equities. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things that we work off and uh, we find to be really an exceptional sort of investment tool is the Dow Gold Ratio. Mm-hmm. That simply is the Dow Jones Industrial Average value divided by the price of, for one ounce of gold. And that uh, ratio goes from extreme highs down to extreme lows. Mm-hmm. And we just wrote a piece uh, which we published on our website saying, you know, effectively you only have to make four investment decisions in your lifetime. Mm-hmm. You either want to be in stock in the general stock market and stocks, or you want to be in gold and gold stocks. Mm-hmm. You never want to be in both at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so, what you try to do is you try to buy uh, equities when the uh, ratio reaches an extreme low, and then when the ratio reaches an extreme high, you uh, sell your equities and you buy gold. And so you can go back and you can look in 1890, 1896, the ratio was a one-to-one at one ounce of gold to buy the Dow Jones Industrials. Mm-hmm. So then you go into 1929 and it reaches a peak. I've forgotten uh, exactly what the number is, but it's you know maybe 19 ounces of gold to buy the mm-hmm. Dow Jones Industrials. Then in the, in, the, in the depression, when the stock market loses 90% of its value, it comes down to a two-to-one relationship. Mm-hmm. Then you buy uh, stocks at that low relationship, and then at the end of spring in 1966, uh, it reaches a high of about uh, 28 to one. Mm-hmm. You sell your stocks and you buy gold, and then uh, which is the summer, and you know that's the inflationary period, so you can buy. Uh, your stock market goes down from uh, ni- uh, 995 in spring down to, well, you know, 450 in, I think, 76. Mm-hmm. But uh, you buy gold, then it goes from $35 an ounce all the way up to 850. Mm-hmm. And that ratio comes back to a one-to-one at the end mm-hmm. of the summer. Mm-hmm. So then you buy your stocks, and you stay in the stock market till you reach an extreme high, which happened to be in July of uh, 1999, when it took 43.85 ounces of gold to mm-hmm. buy the Dow Industrials. You sell your stocks and you buy gold mm-hmm. and gold equities. And we did that at that time. And uh, that ratio has now come down to about just over 8 mm-hmm. to 1. So it's come from 43 all the way to 8, even though the stock market is, is quite close to its it's high that it it, it uh, produced in 2000, October 2007. Gold has outperformed stocks by that kind of uh, level, so it's been up absolutely the right place to be. And now we're going to an extreme low, and at that extreme low, you sell your gold and your gold equities, and you buy back into the stock market. And the 
So all we're looking for is what that what is that low going to be? Mm-hmm. We we well, think it's going to. Sorry. Yeah. No. Sorry, Dean. Go ahead. You you think it's going to be a quarter to one? Yeah. So, so a quarter of an ounce of gold to buy the Dow Jones. Wow. So the Dow. Okay. So a four a one to four ratio. Or Dow one gold four, Dow one thousand gold four thousand, perhaps something like that. Because I think you've talked about in the past you've written, yeah, you've written an article. I know the Dow one thousand is not a silly uh, is not a silly number or not a silly idea, something like that. Right. Um, and so, Ian, it sounds easy. The problem is when you are in real time. Uh, how do you know that for, how do you know that the that that ratio wasn't going to go uh, sixty to one instead of forty three to one? You know the Dow to gold ratio. How well, do you know when you're there? How do you know when you've peaked? Well, you know you you, you fit it actually around the Kondratiev cycle. Mm-hmm. But we knew that the Kondratiev autumn had begun with the Dow Jones uh, bottom in in uh, August nineteen eighty two. So in 1999, we were pretty confident that we were coming to the top. And we could see, and I was a stockbroker at the time, a massive speculation in the dot-coms and, the, and so on stock. Mm-hmm. So that we, we knew that that speculation, that frenzied mm-hmm. buying of the dot-com stocks was obviously going to be, if not the peak, very close to a peak. So mm-hmm. we were able to basically counsel our clients and to counsel and to do the same for ourselves. And by doing that, Jay, and by being 100% invested in gold equity since that time, since 2000, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we've enjoyed my wife. My return on in my account has averaged uh, 75% on, on a compounded basis. That's, a mar- that's, 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 that's marvelous. That's uh, almost unbelievable. That's um, that's that's a very very good return. Obviously, um, what what about uh, okay? So gold is is really one of the best, probably the best place to be. What about silver in a deflationary environment? Um, I'm not as bullish on silver as uh, a lot of people that I have a very high regard for. I um, met with uh, Eric Sprott, who I know I've been on your program. Mm-hmm. Had lunch with him yesterday, mm-hmm. and uh, in Toronto, and uh, he is extremely bullish on gold, and he makes a very good case for his bullishness mm-hmm. on gold or but silver. Ian? On silver, sorry. I, I think he likes I mean, gold as well, but he's he's, well, he he's very bullish prefer, on gold. He much prefers silver to gold, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and he makes a very strong case for his bullishness. Mm-hmm. But I'm not as bullish because. You know, there's a an element, uh, an industrial element in silver, mm-hmm. and I'm talking about a depression that's going to wipe the economy basically down to, you know, to nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the the amount of silver usage on the industrial is going to decline, you know, as the economy declines. Mm-hmm. However, I think that gold is pricing itself to such a level that uh, you know silver is going to be uh, poor man's gold. It's going to, mm-hmm. so it's still going to take on a monetary role. Mm-hmm. I think that the very wealthy uh, are still going to buy gold versus over silver. Um, now we're down to a forty to one. We've been close to a hundred to one in that re- gold silver relationship. So we've come down to about a forty to one relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. 
some people say will return to the relationship of uh, Isaac Newton's time in England, about a 16 to 1 relationship. I don't believe that, but mm -hmm. uh, I'm still bullish on silver, but more bullish on gold. Yeah, it's uh, it's really a very interesting. Um uh, it's really a very interesting relationship. I think some people. Uh, well, I'd like to ask you what would be Mr. Sprott's argument, uh, his compelling argument for silver. Would it be poor man's gold? Would it be a shortage of metal out there to meet demand, or, or what is he talking? Well, about? it's definitely a shortage. Uh, the price is in backwardation right now, so mm -hmm. uh, definitely a shortage uh, in silver. He also, you know, believes that. Um, some of the banks are, are basically, uh, you know, shorting, heavily shorting the silver mm -hmm. market and mm -hmm. suppressing mm -hmm. rights and this kind of thing. So there's sure. all sorts of elements that uh, uh, do suggest a stronger price. I mean, um, it, you know, it, silver is mined generally, uh, you know, as a byproduct. Mm -hmm. It's not, you know, you don't have pure silver mines. Mm -hmm. and. And so if we do go into a, a, a big depression, and I'm pretty well convinced that that's what we're going to go into, the demand for the, the base metals like copper and so on again, is going to drop quite dramatically. And therefore, though, a, lot of my marginal, a lot of these mines that are marginal will start to close down so that the silver byproduct won't be being produced either. Mm -hmm. So silver, you know, uh, could go into fairly short supply too as a result of that. Uh, mine closures, right? Um, but regardless, I you know I, you can't go wrong. I don't believe in the kind of environment that I foresee in, be, in by being in gold. Uh, Could possibly be wrong by being in silver. Ian, you you make a very good point here. Uh, I think, and I was actually as I'm listening to you, uh, you've answered a question that I had for you before, and that has to do. Uh, with what do you tell people when they say yes, but we didn't have a peak in 2000 in the Dow. The Dow went to 14,000 and change uh, since then, and they'll point to that and say that that wasn't the 2000 wasn't the top of the market. But yet, as I look at the Dow in terms of gold, uh, it it was the peak back in 2000. You know that that number it, that you it, talked about. It was, uh, and yeah, and, and re remember too, Jay, that. Really, the the autumn is the most speculative period in stocks, and mm -hmm. the biggest speculation occurred in the Nasdaq, and that peak uh, was reached in March 2000. Nasdaq, I think, was 5400. But what is it today? 2200. Mm -hmm. Nasdaq. Yeah, it's, it's, yes, that's it's right. Never, it's never got back, and that was a speculative market. The element of don't forget the Dow is only 30 stocks too. The S&P, almost you could argue the S&P 500 did a double top 2000 yeah. 2007. Mm -hmm. so very very formation. It's much easier, really, for the the Dow to be you know effectively manipulated, mm -hmm. you know, because it's only 30 stocks, so you can get into the Dow and and buy those 30 stocks and push prices up quite dramatically. Yeah, and if, if they're doing that, but even if they're doing that, uh, as I'm looking at a chart now, and we're, as we're talking, and I'm looking at the Dow to Gold chart, and in 2000, I guess we hit, I guess 2007 maybe, the Dow hit its highest nominal air, uh, price in the 14, 
thousand range. Well, we're looking at something like twenty to one in the Dow to gold ratio, whereas it was forty-three, as you pointed out earlier. So it's been in a steep decline in terms of real money, in terms of gold. The Dow has really been in a very, very steep decline. Um, aside from, uh, uh, so we have this this major decline. How do we know then, Ian, when we get down to, how do we know that the one to four is, I mean, what gives you confidence in that one to four ratio as opposed to a one to one at the bottom of the market? And I might just add that if you go back over time, I think that one to one ratio has been sort of a, a pretty good marker or something two to one in that range, suggesting when the bear market is over in stocks. So I guess you would expect this to happen somewhere around 2020, maybe. We might see a, a low in the in oh, now. I think it's going to be quicker than that. I think the whole system is going to collapse fairly rapidly. You know, I've said 31, 1931 is the, you know, 2011 is the 80th anniversary of, the 19, of 1931. So we're going to see, a, a, I think, a lot of parallels in mm-hmm. 2011 with 1931. And one of the big things is in 1931, it was the biggest uh, annual decline in, the, in stock prices ever. Mm-hmm. Dow lost sixty something percent in that mm-hmm. year, mm-hmm. So we are we do think that we're going to see these kinds of parallels. So you know, you ask when, you know, when are we going to? We're going to look for a one to one relationship and try and figure out okay, a Dow Gold relationship of one to one. We're going to say okay, is, is this the bottom? Mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously, you know, the Dow's, uh, you know, twelve thousand whatever. Um, is gold, you know, one to one? Is gold going to twelve thousand with the Dow at twelve thousand? Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. Obviously not, because uh, if gold's going to twelve thousand, it's because the Dow and the economy are sinking. Mm-hmm. That's what pushed gold up higher. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, but when we get to that one to one, we're going to look at it. But uh, mm-hmm. you know, we think that. Extremes always bring extremes. So the 43.85 was, uh, I think, 60% higher than the previous high Dow Gold relationship. So mm-hmm. we're saying, okay, we're going to get an extreme. We got an extreme high in July 1999. So we're going to get an extreme low this time. Mm-hmm. Also, mm-hmm. we feel that the, the whole system, the whole banking system, is going to collapse. And we're talking not just about the U.S., but the worldwide banking system is going to collapse. And the demand for gold is going to be so enormous mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, if that happens, 4,000 actually could be very, you know, it could be a lot greater than that. And mm-hmm. In fact, we, you know, there may come a time when you can't even get gold. Mm-hmm. And it's impossible to buy it because sure. essentially, yeah. you know, not, they can't produce it fast enough for people to get their hands on it. Right, and people are hoarding it. They're not ready to release it or sell it for what would they sell it for? What can they, if, if you can't turn it into currency, why would you sell it? Do you see then the possibility of gold uh, or or silver possibly becoming a medium of exchange, uh, you know, in, in what's left of the economy, people needing services and things they need to purchase? Do you see that actually happening? And, and if so, it might be a black market, I suppose, right? It might not be. Well, I. I do see it. No, I, I do see it happening. I mean, whenever a paper money system has failed, I mean, this is the first time, Jay, that the entire world has been subjected to a paper money system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And prior to this in history, there have been countries that have been on paper money system, and every time you've been on a paper money system, it has always collapsed. Mm-hmm. The best two, for me, like the best two sort of parallels are uh, the John Law paper money s- system in France in mm-hmm. 1720, mm-hmm. or the Assignat uh, paper money system again in France in, uh, in the revolution about 1794. Mm-hmm. And when these paper, you know, when these paper money systems start to collapse, uh, people just, you know, don't want it, don't want payment in paper. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in France, when the Assignat John Law scheme, you know, the paper money system started to collapse, the farmers wouldn't wouldn't deliver produce into Paris to be paid in these in paper money. In worthless money. So they demanded gold, and in those days, if you demanded gold, you could be guillotined. Mm-hmm. So eventually they said to her, well, we won't even bring any produce sure. into Paris. We'll just hoard it and eat it ourselves. Sure, sure. Um, well, at least the So the whole system started to collapse, and, they, and they, in, both, under, in both occasions, the French government, you know, they out, initially they outlawed uh, gold and silver, uh, so the nobles in France were buying, uh, you know, church uh, silver candlesticks and this kind of thing for the, mm-hmm. you know, as a as a as a security. Sure, sure. We're buying precious metals, but not, uh, you know, not the the money. Mm-hmm. And then eventually, because the system collapsed, I mean, they reverted back to a gold standard system. I mean, mm-hmm. Napoleon. Uh, was introduced in about 1804 after the Arsenal failure. It was, you know, it was a, a gold Napoleon that uh, President Napoleon introduced in France. So I can see that people st- would will start to say we're not going to be paid in this paper anymore. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, you know, we want something different. You know, and you get a plumber and you say, look, if you do this, I'll give you, you know, uh, or he might say, look, if I do this, I want, you know. Two ounces of silver, or three mm-hmm. ounces of silver. Sure. Yes. Yeah, so, so, so it's a case of the markets overwhelming the the policymakers. Ultimately, the reality comes home to roost. Ian, we've got to take another break now, and I want to come back. I hope you can be with us for another few more minutes because there's so much more to talk about. We've seen the Lehman Brothers, of course, mark the Lehman Brothers failure, mark a major decline in prices in in the economy. Uh, scared the heck out of everybody, I think. Uh, and now we've had a bounce back. Uh, I know you believe we're going to see another decline. So when we come back after the break, I want to ask you what you think might cause the next shoe to drop. And then I want to get some more specific ideas about investments and where people might put their money. So don't go away, folks. We're going to be right back with Ian Gordon. Mm-hmm. 